Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Greetings. Uh, my name is Dr. Sidney Brayman, and on behalf of Academic CME and INSMED, uh, I welcome you to this program as a part of a series of podcasts entitled Diagnostic Strategies and Long-Term Management of Patients with Non-Tuberculous Mycobacterial Lung Disease, NTM Lung Disease. We'll be discussing today uh, mycobacterial species other than MTB and M. leprae. Uh, these non-tuberculous mycobacteria, the, M, the, the NTMs, uh, have also been referred to as atypical mycobacteria. Sadly, this uh, disease has been increasing worldwide, likely due to widespread immunocompromised patients, uh, improved diagnostic techniques, and also increased life expectancy. It can cause chronic debilitating pulmonary disease, primarily affecting older individuals and especially women. And that will be important as we discuss one of the abstracts today. The majority of infections are uh, MAVM uh, intracellular complex, but other organisms like M. kansasi and M. M. zenopi are common slow growing NTMs also. M. abscessus is among the rapidly growing NTMs and we'll be discussing that organism in a bit. As you recall from the other podcasts, the diagnosis is based on pulmonary and systemic symptoms, nodular cavitary opacities on the radiograph, uh, sometimes a high resolution CT scan showing bronchiectasis and small pulmonary nodules. It is a diagnosis of exclusion, and indeed uh, it requires at least two expectorated sputum samples. Today on this podcast, we'll be exploring an update on clinical trials and research on NTM that was presented at the 2002 American Thoracic Society meeting held in San Francisco this past spring. Today presenting for us is Dr. Kevin Winthrop. He is Professor of Infectious Diseases and Epidemiology at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Dr. Winthrop. Thanks, Sydney. The first study uh, will to be discussed uh, and addressed is a question that has perplexed uh, clinicians uh, with respect to NTM for years. Uh, it relates to why older women may be more press susceptible to getting this, this organism infection. The abstract female reproductive factors and incidence of NTM pulmonary disease among postmenopausal women in Korea is the first abstract to be discussed. Sure, thanks Sydney. Um, there was some exciting things at uh, ATS this year. I guess the first thing that was most exciting were, were people. There were actually live people there together. So <laughs> that, that was a real win. Um, there were some things in, uh, in this area, in diagnostics, treatment, so I'm, I'm happy to cover a few of the, the highlights. The first abstract you mentioned uh, came out of uh, uh, South Korea, um, and it was a population-based cohort study looking at, uh, I don't know, about a million and a half people based on their national health screening exams. And they followed this cohort out until they either died, developed NTM, or uh, were no longer uh, visible in their database. Um, about 
150, I think the instance NTM was about 150 per 100,000, which is about right. It's probably similar to what we've seen here in the US with uh, older age groups. And as you mentioned, uh, this disease is more common in women. It's, it's about 60, 40, 60% women, 40% men. Although we've shown here in the US that it's, it's about 50, 50 uh, up until older age groups. So starting at age 40 or 50, when you start to see this, it's actually slightly more male predominant. And then it flips as, as the cohort gets older. What was interesting is they looked at, um, in a Cox regression model, the relationship of um, HRT or hormone replacement therapy and the incidence of NTM, what, what they found was the, the longer the women had been on HRT, the more likely they were to develop NTM. Now they theoretically controlled for you know, age at first um, menses or age at um, menarche, age at um, you know, um, menopause. I mean, they, they said they control for all these things age, of course. Uh, I don't think they had ability to control for BMI, which we know is an important risk factor, low BMI. So I'm not sure they were able to control for everything that they probably needed to control for. So I, I personally don't know what this finding means, other than um, the older you get, the more likely you are to develop this. Probably, um, you know, that that's really what we're looking at here. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's a relationship between actual hormones and this infection, although I guess the hypothesis has always been, you know, this is a postmenopausal infection. It must have to do something with the lack of hormones. Um, no one's ever really been able to explain why estrogen or progesterone or any of these hormones would, would really make um, a difference in terms of the, the body's ability to uh, prevent or control this infection. Um, so anyway, I, I guess I was intrigued by this abstract. Uh, I'm not sure they were able to evaluate all the variables needed in terms of, you know, ruling out residual confounding due to this, that, and the other thing. But, but it seemed to make sense that, you know, older, older women, ones that are probably more beyond menopause and others were, were more likely to be developing this. But what I didn't really see is, you know, what was interesting to me is that they had this no HRT line, you know, people who are supposedly the same age, et cetera, that aren't on HRT uh, and they they had the lowest risk. So, so again, I, I don't know why, you know, if anything, you know, I would hypothesize that the use of HRT might be protective, but, but they, they found the opposite. So I, I think it's uh, an observation that deserves further inquiry. Okay. Uh, one of the things that brought that this brought to mind is that uh, th there may be uh, medications uh, that we're taking that, that could predispose. Uh, could you comment, for example, on individuals who may be on chronic oral steroids or inhaled corticosteroids? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Again, those are the kind of things in that analysis that they weren't able to, to look at, right? So um, maybe some of those factors were, were driving this result. They're being confounded. Uh, we, we've done work, Ted Maris has done work, other people have done work. I mean, we've all looked at uh, oral steroid use. And there's a definite association with um, incidence of NTM. Uh, and even inhaled corticosteroids, there's there's multiple analyses now that, that show that uh, there's a dose-dependent relationship with, with either inhaled or systemic corticosteroids and um, the risk of NTM. And there's other immunosuppressives as well. You mentioned, um, you know, other immune modulatory therapies, anti-TNF therapy, for example, we looked at years ago, 
and found that, uh, you know, similar to TB, also with non-TB mycobacterium, there's an increased risk. So there's a number of other therapies we could go through, but certainly um, I, I would agree with your initial um, statements that, you know, we're seeing a rising incidence. And part of that is due to the fact that people are living older and there's more people on uh, chronic immunosuppressive therapy. As a pulmonologist, uh, I've used a lot of inhaled corticosteroid and the work that you cited does indicate that there is a higher uh, incidence. Anything that we should be thinking about other than dosage, uh, screening patients who are on inhaled corticosteroid, Carl? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I guess, you know, you know, some people really need them. Uh, and that's, that to me is, is an important factor when I'm deciding how to advise a patient. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who don't really need them or, or they don't feel any different on them, yet they're on them. So um, a lot of times I try to, to get those patients just to stop them and see how they do. And if they're, if they're functioning fine without them, they probably don't need to be on them. Um, there's other people, as you know, they're the opposite. They need to be on them. They just don't function well without them. So, um, but, you know, in terms of screening, I, I don't think so, but I think, you know, always being keenly aware as to uh, what the underlying lung disease is that you're treating. I mean, certainly bronchiectatics have a much higher risk of acquiring NTM than, you know, people with run-of-the-mill uh, COPD or, or something. So, um, they're also a risk, but it's much, much lower. So I, I, I would think of, you know, anybody with bronchiectasis trying to avoid steroids if they really need them, then, you know, screening them for uh, MAC periodically or obsessus, you know, NTM. It's not That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So we've mentioned a few times about the increased uh, incidence of this, this disease and obviously the importance of diagnosis and management is being increasingly recognized. In view of the uh, need for a specific uh, uh, diagnosis in, in all cases, uh, leads us to the next abstract. The use of anti-glycopeptidolipid core antibody serology for the diagnosis and monitoring of mycobacterium avium complex pulmonary disease in the United States. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this was my group's ad abstract. We were quite excited about it. It was a collaboration between us and some Japanese colleagues where this IgA um, serology was developed, and it is actually approved for use in Japan, uh, and it's not approved here, it's not available. We were pretty keen on seeing how it worked in a US cohort. Uh, there has been very limited evaluation of this assay in US patients before, so this was kind of the second evaluation. Um, as you said, I, I think as a clinician treating these patients, I mean, I'm one of the biggest challenges is that, you know, individuals, their sputum dries up after three months or six months, <laughs> which is good. It means they're getting better, but I can't really monitor the microbiologic progress of their uh, treatment. So um, we are looking for ways to not just diagnose better upfront, because as you mentioned too, you know, a lot of folks don't even make sputum at the start. It's hard to diagnose them or the quality of their sputum is, is, you know, low volume and not, not that good. So, um, this IGA, I think, has some promise because what we were able to show in a very small cohort of, of MAC patients and controls, uh, primarily drawn out of our biobank that we run at our university, uh, but we found it to be about 50% sensitive, about 90% specific. Now, the sensitivity was a little lower up front with diagnostics than I expected. It was a little lower than what's been reported in Japan. 
Um, we messed around with the cut points of the assay a bit, and we were able to kind of make the sensitivity look better. But if you use the uh, the cut points that are you know published by the manufacturer, sensitivity seemed a little little too low for me. That being said, it was relatively quite specific, and I think what was most interesting, and really what I'm I'm looking for is is you know can I follow these patients? during therapy, figure out when they're done, when can I stop treatment and then follow them long-term after they've stopped therapy to see if they've had a relapse or a recrudescence. Uh, we all know a lot of these people get reinfected from the environment or, or they just, you know, what's remaining, the infection that's remaining, we may only knock out 90, 95% of it in the treatment. And then, you know, a couple of years later after stopping, whatever's left, has uh, bounced back. So I think this IGA may, may show promise from that. We, we did follow these cases out um, at between month zero, i.e. treatment start. Uh, and some of them had month six data, some of them had month 12 data. Uh, either way, we were able to show that the levels of IGA actually decreased uh, over time with treatment. So I, I do think this suggests that um, you know, in the next study, we're, we're going to do this more robustly, but we're also going to look after therapy stopped to see if we can pick up relapse and recrudescence with, with this tool. And I, I suspect we could, um, and it, it could be very useful. So, so I'm hoping that, you know, in the next few years, we can get this assay uh, to the U.S., um, and, and it will be useful. Super. Yeah, this is exciting. Uh as a clinician who struggles with this, uh, I, I can uh, mimic your, soup, uh, your enthusiasm. So uh, this has not been approved, uh, use, use in Japan, maybe someday in the US. Uh, in the meantime, uh, could you give some uh, sort of guidance to clinicians? When you make that diagnosis, how are you following these patients? Sputum, uh, CAT scan, how often? Uh, when do you stop therapy? And at what point uh, do you say, okay, enough? Sure. Enough? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're you're trying to get those two sputums up front or a bronchoscopy if you if uh, the person can't produce sputums. Um, but we we do sputum induction. We're usually pretty successful if we really try induction uh, techniques. Um, you know, once the diagnosis is made, uh, if they're put on treatment, I check sputum every one to two months. Uh, I have colleagues that are very militant about every one month. I have others that are a little laissez-faire, um, you know, it's every three months. But we try every one to two months. I think I try harder initially because I want to I want to make sure the patient's responding. You know, after they've converted to negative, let's say after, you know, three, four, five, six months, I don't check as frequently after that. Maybe I'll check every three months. Uh, but, but really, you want to know when they convert because our, our treatment duration as per our guidelines, is 12 months post culture conversion. So, so checking more frequently up front is, is key. And that way you can kind of capture when they go negative and you can kind of peg your treatment duration to that. Um, you know, after, after they're done with treatment, I follow these people fairly closely. I still see them every three or four months um, for many, many years. Uh, and sometimes eventually cut that back to every six months. And I've got a few people maybe who just check in with me once a, a year now because they're many years out uh, from their, their past infection. But particularly the bronchiectatics, I mean, they, they are uh, you know, probably 75, 80% of the NTM group. Uh, and those are the people that you, know, you just tend to keep seeing uh, frequently. And I check surveillance sputums after treatment. And again, I, I will check every three or four months um, looking for recrudescence. Not to mention a lot of those folks need bronchiectasis management. You know, I mean, they have ongoing other issues other infections, other flares. So there's, there's a lot to do 
um, as you know, it's a chronic disease and it's, it's not going anywhere. You just got to manage it. So speaking of Rocky axis, I'm glad you did mention that. And as you said, about 75% of the, the patients who you're caring for with, uh, with, uh, this mycobacterial disease do have underlying bronchiectasis. Uh, what do you do in the way of pulmonary clearance for these patients? Does it help uh, clear the organism? And uh, certainly it might help their bronchiectasis, but uh, how do you put this in the, in the treatment paradigm? Yeah, it's very, uh, very good question. So I, th I think more and more, I mean, you and I and others, we're, we're all using it, right? We're all telling these patients, hey, you know, get, get on your flutter valve, uh, start using hypertonic saline every day, you do these breathing exercises and all, all these things, you know, we get some people vests. Um, so, I mean, we all believe in these things. There's very little data uh, backing a lot of these things up. And we, we have a randomized control trial, actually a grant funded by NTM IR, which is a patient advocacy group where we're actually taking new Mac patients and randomizing them to hypertonic saline or, or nothing. Uh, trying to see if there's a benefit uh, in quality of life measurements, but also in the microbiology, there's some thought that, you know, the salt content of the saline may have some negative uh, effects on the MAC. Um, you know, th there's not a lot of data out there. So we're, we're trying to collect some, I think some others are also, uh, but, but I do think, you know, patients certainly tell me that they feel better. They also complain and say, I, I don't like doing this every day. <laughs> it is a pain in the butt. I mean, I, I have chronic back pain. I do all these exercises every day. And I, it's like an hour of my day every day, right? I mean, yeah, that's what these folks are doing with their, you know, saline and nebulizer and whatnot. So it, it would be nice to have some solid data to, to actually make people feel like, hey, I, I know I'm doing the right thing. Um, that, there was another abstract there. I'll just mention at ATS, it was... Uh, it was actually uh, a cohort study using uh, population-based, you know, kind of farm metrics. This was uh, via's farm metrics database, uh, and they looked at people who with bronchiectasis who were uh, prescribed a vest. And they looked at uh, antibiotic use and flare use, um, or exacerbation, in the twelve months before starting the vest, and compared it to the twelve months after starting the vest. Uh, and of course, you know, there's all sorts of potential uh, confounding issues and channeling bias, et cetera. I mean, in these types of observational studies, however, it, it looks like it was done well from the abstract. And, and again, it's just looking at individuals pre and post their vest. So they're, they're their own control. So potentially it's a pretty powerful study uh, type or methodology. And, you know, they did, they did find that these people had fewer exacerbations after starting their vest. So of course they may have started a whole, a lot of other things like hypertonic saline and exercise and all, all sorts of things that weren't able to be looked at. But, but you know, was it is one of the first pieces of data that I've seen that might support this type of intervention. So, so are you using the vest routinely or if um, you know, I, I give patients the option of getting a vest. Um, I mean, because I, I do think it's one of several options. I, I can tell you what I really. I really push patients to do is uh, aerobic exercise. I mean, I, I think that that's all, all told that the cheapest and the best form of hygiene probably, um, and obviously it has a lot of other benefits as well. Um, beyond that, then I, you know, I offer them uh, several types of flutter valves and the vest is another option. I mean, some people really like the vest. Some people want nothing to do with it. I, I think it's an option for people if they want it, so. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, as you're discussing this, I have this image in my brain of my 80-year-old patients with uh, 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 mycobacterial, let's say MAI, 
disease, mycobacterium uh, abium, and uh, hanging over the side of the bed doing postural drainage. It doesn't yeah. quite compute. <laughs> right. Now that person may rather put a vest on and watch a movie. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I think it really depends on the patient and sure, what they prefer. Sure. So yeah. it's all about exactly. shared decision making, you know, yeah. patient preference, all that. So. so. I think the final, uh, maybe uh, one or two abstracts we could discuss relates to uh, mycobacterium abscessus, uh, the most, uh, second most common of the, of the non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung diseases. Uh, could you comment on uh, uh, the abstracts at ATS? Yeah, sure. I, I'll mention a few of them. I, I agree. This is a, such a challenging bug. Um, I don't know that it's any more virulent than MAC. I think we've always thought it was and is. Maybe... Um, Overall, if I had to say that, you know, if I was pressed, I'd say probably there's there's more virulent strains of abscessus than MAC. But but a lot of people with just kind of chronic abscessus that look just like MAC. I mean, they just kind of poke along, very indolent progression, very slow progression, um, and you know don't have to treat them right up front. And you know, for MAC, it's a lot easier to start treatment, uh, and we veer towards earlier treatment. For abscessus, you know, you really you really don't want to treat anyone um, because there's no drugs that, that work against it <laughs> that are oral. So, you know, you're really forced into using a, a multi-drug regimen with two, three IV uh, meds. Uh, the only oral drug that is generally, um, you know, there are, you know, maybe 10 or 15% of obsessive strains or species, subspecies or isolates that are susceptible to macrolides, but you know, 80 to 90% aren't. So you're really boxed into to IVs and maybe looking overseas to bring in clofazamine. That, that would be our only oral uh, therapy. So, so there are some therapies on the horizon. Omatocycline is really exciting. Uh, this is IV and it's oral. Um, we often use tigacycline in IV form against abscesses, but omatocycline our experience uh, matches the experience of the, the treatment center uh, at University of South Carolina. They reported in their abstract at ATS um, 26 patients that had used amatocycline. Um, it was fairly well tolerated. They had, uh, you know, uh, I think 15% of the patients stopped it due to adverse events. Um, that'd be a lot lower than what we see with tigacycline in the real world, where yeah. let's say about probably half of half the patients can't tolerate it, or maybe 30 or 40 percent, mainly due to nausea and vomiting. Um, a, a good proportion of these patients converted their culture and were tolerating well, and it was it looked like it was a valuable part of their multi-drug regimen. So there, there is actually a very exciting phase two trial that I helped design that is a multi-center trial that is being run now. Uh, we're participating, there's like I don't know, six, 10 sites nationally, but it's a, it's a monotherapy trial for three months of kind of mild to moderate abscesses. So non-cavitary disease, um, patients that you kind of look at and think, well, I should probably treat you, but boy, this treatment's quite a burden. Um, let's put you in this trial and they get, they get amatocycline monotherapy. So we're trying to, A, you know, capture the, the true efficacy and uh, safety of this compound by itself uh, and hopefully it'll it'll show that it's working and then of course well the next study would be with uh, in the context of some sort of multi-drug therapy but these kind of reports like the one from South Carolina uh, Dr. Mingora was the first author Patrick Flume was a senior author a good friend of mine uh, but this is exciting because I think there's there are other uh, anecdotal reports or case series out there that that 
and I would say it matches our experience where we've probably had about 20 people on a metacycline also. Uh, people have done quite well with it. You mentioned the high incidence of the macrolide resistance. How about the metacycline? Is that going to be a problem, you think, in the future? Yeah, so it's interesting that monotherapy trial we're doing with the metacycline, um, you know, runs the risk of, you know, some of those folks might develop a metacycline resistance. I will say that we've never seen resistance to metacycline. We've really never seen resistance to tigacycline, uh, which is a related compound. So, I mean, what's interesting is we don't know that it can even happen. Uh, so we're, I mean, that's part of the study. We're trying to see if it does happen. Gotcha. Um, it, it might not. I mean, it is it is possible that it's, it's not possible to evolve resistance to something. Um, that rarely happens. It'd be nice to see, but we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. Super. Well, um, with that, I think we're uh, sort of at the end of time. Uh, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kevin Winthrop, uh, for your expertise and also the great work you're doing in this field. Uh, as a clinician who cares for these patients, we certainly need you and, and the work you're doing. Uh, with that, I uh, thank Academic uh, CME uh, for this opportunity to present uh, to you this podcast. Thanks, Sydney. Appreciate being here.